This is episode 218 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Eleni Austin, Music Reviewer and Walking Encyclopedia. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I'm so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. I've got Elaine Austin with us, and she's a music reviewer. So something new for our show today. Uh, Welcome, Elaine and Bill. Thank you. Hello. I'm going to introduce Elaine. She was born into a large, loud Greek family. Her mother was the youngest of eight daughters, and Elaine is the youngest of her cousins. So she was an only child, but she said it never felt like that. She grew up in LA, Laurel Canyon, and Los Feliz from the 60s to the mid 70s, and she moved to the desert just in time for puberty and disco. Sounds like we need to hear about that. <laughs> Uh, She's been passionate about music since childhood and started working in record stores at age 15 and has now spent over 40 years in music retail. She credits her mother with exposing her to a wide range of music as a kid. Her mom was a dancer with Arthur Murray before Eleni arrived and had seen all the jazz greats come through LA in the 50s and was good friends with Bobby Short before he hit it big in New York City. And so Eleni was happy enough with rock as a kid, but uh, her mom would play Billie Holiday, Tito Puente, Greek music, Conway Twitty, Ray Charles, and Judy Garland. And so she developed an affinity for all that kind of music too, despite herself. All right. Welcome, Eleni. Hello. So um, where did your love of music begin? Is it just with growing up or did certain things strike you in a certain way? You know, um, even in my baby book, I was born in 63 and uh, I had uh, older cousins that were into the Beatles when I was just a baby. And in my baby book, uh, my mother documented that when people said, I love you, I'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was very verbal at an early age. I started talking at about seven months. And seriously, and my first words were actually in Greek. Oh. There was always a lot of music in my house, uh, in my, in, you know, uh, soundtracks from the music man, Judy Garland, like I said, uh, holiday, Ray Charles, the West coast jazz, uh, country music. And, uh, I can remember having my first favorite song when I was maybe like four, it was, uh, happy together by the turtles. Yeah. And then. Year after year, I would just, you know, I would, I was buying rec- my own records. I got my first uh, grown-up record. Up until then, it was stuff like Walt Disney Records and Chipmunk Sing the Beatles. Mm-hmm. But when I was about, my uh, one of my cousins gave me uh, the first James Taylor uh, Sweet Baby James album. And that was nice. like my first adult record that I would play on my little close and play. Uh-huh. Uh, if you're old enough. To- records from the 60s where you put the, where the needle was kind of on the lid of the record player. Oh, weird. So it just kind of went from that. I was uh, I listened to radio all the time growing up. And then uh, every year I would have like a favorite song. And I was uh, became deeply in love with the Osmonds in about fourth grade. And that lasted a couple of years. And so it was just, you know, collecting more and more records. I remember on my ninth birthday, I got like a record almost every day for the week leading up to my ninth birthday. That's what happens when you're an only child. You get lavished with a lot of gifts and there's stuff <laughs> like funny and the Brady Bunch record and uh, some Donny Osmond records and stuff like that and Partridge Family and I've always just had records and always loved music you know all different I mean and not at first but as I got older I began to appreciate music that my mother was shoving down my throat when I didn't want to hear it 
<laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Your family was so supportive, right? That they just gave you record after record after record, right? That they really supported that love. It's interesting. I had interest at the time too, but people, I don't know. They just, people started giving me records. So I was mm -hmm. happy. Mm -hmm. I know your mom owned a, a Greek restaurant in Los Angeles. And what was the environment like that back in the 60s? Well, you know, she opened the restaurant in a little kind of strip mall on Santa Monica Boulevard when I was six years old. It was actually going to open the weekend the Manson family murders happened, but oh. it got pushed ahead a week. That was kind of weird, um, yeah. which I was knowledgeable about at that point, but not deeply. She, you know, my mother kind of always danced to her own tune. She uh, <laughs> was, a, like I said, the answer for Arthur Murray in the 50s. And she, you know, had come from a very strict family. They all had to get married in, in chronological order. Uh, by the time she was 25, uh, her family kind of considered her a uh, uh, an old maid. Old maid. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, no, I hope they're not going to say that. Yep. <laughs> 25. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Constantly trying to fix her up with uh, eligible Greek bachelors. And she was having none of it. And her mm. parents had died then. And so she just did what she wanted. Uh, she was a dancer. and did that for a long time and then uh, decided she won't, there wasn't any good Greek restaurants in Los Angeles. At that point, there were nightclubs. There were a couple of nightclubs on Hollywood Boulevard, but she wanted really good Greek food. And she recruited a chef that had been in big uh, Greek places in New York and Chicago. He categorically did not want to work for a woman, oh. but he changed his came on board. Her restaurant, it was just a little tiny, had like nine tables and it fed people buffet style you looked at the food and you picked what you wanted and you sat down with your food and a waitress should come get you your drink and it started to become more and more successful uh greek celebrities would come in you know mm. he ended up moving to a bigger location in hollywood which was actually had been an old uso and it was half of, half of the building was the uso part the other half was a hotel <laughs> and it's actually pretty much where amoeba stands right now where oh, wow. moved to. Yeah. So it was it was uh, growing up in the 60s and the early 70s in Los Angeles, you kind of had that old Hollywood glamour. But as it receded, you kind of got the influence of the counterculture at the same time. And I was a little kid, but I remembered it. I remember being on the Sunset Strip with her and we walked past a record store and the album cover in the window was uh, Two Virgins by John and Yoko. And my mother went in and... Uh, and my mother was kind of a proto-hippie and fully bohemian and everything else, but she went in and just yelled at them about having her child have to see these <laughs> naked people. Uh -huh. She didn't care that they, that they were really ugly naked people, and she didn't want to put any bad thoughts in my head with unattractive naked people. She just wanted to see if they were pretty naked people, it would have been okay. But they were <laughs> ugly. Her aesthetic sensibilities were offended. That's funny. <laughs> what, was the, what was the name of the restaurant, by the way? called Greek Town. We did it in 69. By then, you know, like a lot of, there was a, there's a, um, a TV guide interview I have for, with Michael Constantine, who passed away this last year. He was a really good friend of my mother's. He, most people know him as the father in my big fat Greek wedding. And he was oh. on a TV series of Room 222. And uh, the whole interview took place in my mother's restaurant. And that's the first thing you read about is how he, his Greek oh. identity was important cultivated it in one way by coming to this restaurant blah 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 so you know there was and you know when you're in Hollywood you see people all the time that are celebrities even if you don't know I had my first celebrity encounter in the bathroom of some steakhouse when I was six and I heard Bobby Gentry making a phone call like to her gynecologist <laughs> hmm, I know quite who Bobby Gentry was but I knew she was somebody that was something and then Maybe when I was like seven, we used to go to the Brown Derby a lot. And uh, Agnes Moorhead and Debbie Reynolds were having breakfast the same time we were. So you just saw people like that. I was like, oh, it's Endora. You know, I barely knew who <laughs> Debbie Reynolds was. But you and Dora can be with. And, you know, you just encountered them all the time when I was a kid. And also the whole Sunset Strip thing was kind of happening. And you'd see the hippies and you'd see the kids hiking. And it was kind of uh, before it kind of turned and got a little more you know, Mantony and all that stuff. It was a uh, kind of a, a still a glamorous environment, for lack of a better word. Well, it must have been a really uh, interesting time to just be observing 
It was, and, and I was a fairly observant child. I don't know if it's because I was an only child and, uh, you know, had uh, all my own thoughts of my own. I didn't ever really, you know, have to share them with people or, or you know, I just always was paying attention to what was happening in a pop culture sensibility. We had the restaurant until uh, the early 70s. My father had uh, invested in it. They'd been divorced long before I was born. And he invested in it uh, because she was having some issues with her bookkeeper who ended up trying to embezzle, or did embezzle money. And my mother was going to have to file for Chapter 11. But my father offered to invest. And then they had a liquor license and stuff like that. And then my father, who they'd been long divorced and he was gay and he um, actually wanted her to get back together with him. But he was living with a guy at the time. So she thought it over and decided it wouldn't be a healthy situation. And then he, he began to kind of slowly sabotage the restaurant. So she ended up walking away from it when I was about 11 and um, we moved out to the desert. She was kind of sick of Los Angeles. She found it too crowded in 1974. I don't know what she would think of it now. <laughs> Yeah, he had ran it for a couple more years after uh, we'd moved away and would people would come in and ask where she was and he would say she was on vacation. So a few years later, that restaurant by the by the mid 80s actually became a punk club called Raji's, where people like Dream, Dream Syndicate made their albums and bands like Jane's Addiction and Red Hot Chili Peppers and all kinds of bands made made their debuts there. Fit <laughs> into a, a punk club and it lasted like that, I think, until maybe the turn of the 90s. And a couple of years later, they raised that whole half of that block to make like a substation for the metro. They tore down the whole building. So you have worked in music stores for many, many years. I know that in Palm Springs, you're kind of known as like the go-to person for music information. So how did that happen? I started in high school working in a record shop and then um, worked for many years for the warehouse chain we had a, there was a store here in Palm Springs and I worked for them for about 19 years. And I just kind of had such a big exposure to music, all different kinds. It wasn't just one kind that I listened to. I'd had exposure to what my mother played and I had older, I had uh, my cousin Callie's husband when I was uh, in my teens made me like a psychedelic tape and stuff like that. So I, all different kinds of music. And I just kind of have that kind of memory where it would, you know, I would know if somebody was asking for something, kind of figure it out. I had a guy tell me a few years ago that I was uh, Google before there was Google. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty, I was pretty uh, pleased with that. Yeah. And, um, that's the kind of stuff that stays in my head. If you ask me who the seventh president was, I, I couldn't tell you. You know, it, but that kind of stuff, you know, when the Beatles, all that, you know, I would read music books and and that's mostly primarily what was the foundation of it. Just reading Rolling Stone when it was good, reading Cream magazine. When you're young like that, in that era, you don't have the uh, luxury of looking for something online. You'd hear a song and you'd have to find out who sang the song. You'd wait all day, maybe tape the song. I remember doing that when I was 11 or 12. I guess maybe I was 12 with Bohemian Rhapsody, I heard it in the middle of the day and I was like, what is this? And mm. sat all day with my tape recorder ready to record it and to find out, you know, and then finding out, you kind of had to do that on your own. It, all that stuff just stayed in my mind. I can remember stuff like that better than I can tell you what I ate for, for dinner last week. It's just <laughs> the stuff that stays in there. It, you know, the other stuff is all just ephemeral. That doesn't, that doesn't stick with me. But I have one of those minds where I can tell you, I have a friend of mine, uh, Rick, who will always mock me when I tell a story and say, uh, and she was wearing a yellow shirt and she was wearing brown pants because I will go into the deep detail of whatever was happening in the middle of whatever story it is, just because that's the way my mind works. It's a, it's a really um, great resource. I think I read a Yelp review for one of the record stores where you worked and they commented on having you there and how great it was to have somebody like you working there, oh. right? Where you could just walk up and ask this person. And I thought, yeah, it's like the reference librarian or something, or like Google, right? Yeah. I went into a record store when I was uh, in my early teens and I was looking for the um, Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil. But it's called that, but they don't really say that in the song. And all yeah. I can remember was the you know, please allow me to introduce myself. And I said that to somebody <laughs> behind the record counter and they didn't know. And I was like, how oh. do you not know this? <laughs> you know, and I finally, I figured out my, and I thought, if I ever work in a record store, I'm going to know, <laughs> you know? And so, 
you know, some things I, or I don't have, I don't have much of an affinity for classical or opera. And that was stuff you kind of learn on the job, you know, mm-hmm. composers and, and, uh, you know, Yo-Yo Ma and, and Placido Domingo and stuff like that. And it, it stayed in my mind, but, it, you know, or new age music, which is to me is like oral wallpaper, you know, that makes me sleepy or it makes me feel like somebody's just given me a Novocaine shot and I'm waiting for the uh, tooth to be extracted because that's the kind of music you hear in dentist's office. I can't take it. But so it, it was just for me, it became like a thing for me. I'm kind of a know-it-all. So it, it fit in perfectly that I would know, you know, it, it was just important to me to know it. And uh, if I could, you know, help somebody else know it too, that's, that's even better. You know, your love of music got you the spot ready music and concert reviews for the Palm Springs Weekly. And I know a lot of artists, because I read your reviews, I read some of your things that people write back to you. And I know a lot of artists enjoy the writings about them, that they really praise you for reviewing them and the things you say. But you, you can also pull no punches. And really, what surprises you about doing reviews? Well, first, I have to correct you a little bit. It's Coachella Valley Weekly. I actually started when I was 20. I wrote our local paper, which is still the local daily paper called the Desert Sun. And I said, you guys don't have any record reviews. You should let me write record reviews. And they did. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty surprised by it. So I did that when I was in my early 20s for about five years until that paper got consumed by Gannett News. Mm-hmm. So I'd already had a foundation for that. And about 10 years ago, a friend of mine that I met when I was working at Warehouse, I started a weekly band showcase in the summers. We had a fairly large store and there was a spot where a band could set up. And I felt bad for younger kids that were in bands that couldn't play in clubs. Mm-hmm. And there's really sometimes no scene to speak of for live music here unless it's, you know, somebody doing some Rat Pack crap or something. Mm-hmm. And so I would have weekly bands come in and play. And I met this woman who wrote for a different weekly at the time. This was about 20 years ago. And we sort of became friends. She started her own paper, Coachella Valley Weekly, 10 years ago. And she asked me if I would write something for them. And that's how that evolved. You know, I'm pretty opinionated. So I'd love to share my opinion with everybody else. And most of the time, when I decide to write what I'm going to write about, they give me free reign and they let me write as much as I want. Sometimes they, they're kind of like, oh, my God, this is like 2,300 words. What's wrong with you? But they still <laughs> publish it. Like, here's an extra page for you. You know, um, I was raised on, you know, Cream and Rolling Stone and Spin and uh, Musician Magazine and Trouser Press and stuff like that. And I remember reading you read an album review if you uh, another guy that's a true hero of mine uh is michael gilmore who wrote for the la herald for a long long time and Mm. became he's also a um he's he writes he writes books he writes for rolling stone a lot but he was a writer he and todd were both writers for the herald examiner and i can remember reading things like about prince's 1999 album that would make me want to go buy the album. I had no idea who Prince was. He was barely on my radar at that point. And I was just like, you have to go get it. And so when I read things, little capsule things that they have now or whatever, it doesn't really tell you anything about an album. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't tell you, you know, I always treat it like you're reading something about somebody you've never heard about. So I'm going to tell you about them first. And then I'm going to tell you about this album. And I could be brutally kind of, horrible when it's something that's bad so I try you know I try not to go looking for something like that once in a while there's like Arctic uh, Monkeys made an album a few years ago that I that I referred to as the um, uh, oral equivalent of uh, mom jeans it was just so boring and um, (laughs) although that's not that that's not that mean (laughs) I was kind of braced for something horrific it's not that bad well you know or Something else about somebody where I said it was the it was the musical equivalent of a man bun because it was just too, <laughs> too so I can be pretty brutal and I've come across albums where even if it's somebody I love like Bob Dylan made an album ten years ago where I just couldn't believe how awful I thought it was and I said so or um, Michael Franti of Spearhead I love that band and he made this album that sounded like an extended uh, Corona Light commercial it was just like <laughs> I like he was the Jimmy Buffett of I don't know. It was just bad. And if I come across something that's bad, I'm going to say so. But if I come across something, if somebody sends me something and says, you write about this, if I listen to it and I don't like it, I don't want to, I don't want to just really want to rake them over the coals. Mm -hmm. So I'll just set it aside and say, you know, it wasn't for me or whatever. Uh 
I try, I try to pick, you know, obviously I'm picking things that I'm interested in or if that's something that I've heard about that intrigues me, like somebody like Phoebe Bridgers came out in LA a few years ago and <clears throat> I read a couple of things that seemed interesting. Or there's another artist like that named Bedouin who's Armenian and uh, her music really resonated for me. So I'm always happy to discover stuff, which, you know, I read a bunch of stuff to see. You can't really, there aren't really magazines or things devoted to music anymore. So it's, it kind of, as much as, technology has aided in finding things i think typically if you're listening to spotify or pandora the algorithms all keep you kind of in the same mm-hmm. bandwidth you don't get to you, nothing pops out that you hadn't heard before you know if you're listening to a steady diet of music that that sounds like soft cell because that's what you love or you know the pet shop was it's never going to break out of that so even though they have these things that are kind of almost like tailored to what you like i i don't want to I want to hear something new Mm -hmm. or I want to read about something new, but you don't have that anymore. Rolling Stone is just some giant, like, you know, you flip through it and there's all these fashion-y pictures of these kids with covered in tattoos. And, and now I sound like a really old woman, but it's just like, I want to get to something that's going to be an interview with a musician. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't care what's hot and what's not hot. And that's kind of what the, that magazine has evolved into. So I stopped after about 40 years, I stopped subscribing to it. Yeah. There's no real, I mean, some of the, the British magazines will go deep into things, but those are like 12 bucks a piece. Well, wow. That, that's just, that's just fascinating there. Yeah. You've raised <laughs> about six, six topics that, yeah, I want to pursue <laughs> more, right? but yeah, first I have to rant and, you know, Bill and I have talked about this a little bit that we do get increasingly siloed. It seems like in our music because partly because yeah. of these algorithms and also I, they're also really crappy. Um, again, forgive my rant here, but what they, what they tend to do is identify another artist that's similar to uh-huh. the, the artist of the song that you've just listened to. And so they'll put, you know, for me, for example, they'll put Bonnie Raitt back to back with Eric Clapton over and over and over. Well, those yeah. two artists have a very wide catalog and so it's not it's really not accomplishing what they think they're accomplishing it's because of because of the way they themselves have categorized the artist it's almost like they're not really listening to the music they're just doing it by these categories so that's rant Mm -hmm. number one and then secondly it does it silos us right and so we've We've talked about how do you find new music, right? That that you wouldn't otherwise discover. And you make a great point that it used to be we would do that with reviews, right? Or or especially radio, right? DJs that we liked who would play interesting things. Well, when I was a kid, AM radio played everything. You hear uh, Song Sung Blue by Neil Diamond, and then you'd hear uh, Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, and then you'd hear The Candyman, and you know, by Sammy Davis, and then you'd you'd hear bread or whatever, but everything became so narrowed mm-hmm. that, that now there's a different station for every one of those things. So right. if you're not hearing something you hate or something that makes you, you, that makes you prick up your ears and go, wait, what's that? You're just hearing the same stuff. It's mm-hmm. very, you know, growing up then and then also having like the dawn of FM radio, which we could get through the cable from here. We could get KMET and we could get KLOS. And then, of course, when K-Rock, that was my, you know, I couldn't wait when I live in Palm Springs and when we'd get to like Banning, you could, you know, turn the radio dial so you'd get K-Rock and it would just be nonstop Clash or Elvis Costello, which was what I was the most interested in when I was a teenager. I'm a big Elvis Costello fan. Bill is a huge Elvis Costello fan and that's how we met. And that's another path that takes you down a road. <laughs> if you listen to Elvis Costello, like I couldn't even begin to put up with my mother's Conway Twee crap or or Ray Price singing, She Wears My Ring. I thought I was just going to stick a knife in my throat. But then Elvis put out a country album, and I was like, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Elvis is putting out a country album. Maybe I need to revisit this. Mm-hmm. And so I listened to his country album, and my mother and her sisters, if they were here playing cards or playing Scrabble or something, would be like, turn that shit off. What is he doing ruining these songs by, you know, Hank Williams or something? Or they couldn't, they couldn't take it. But I was like, it's Elvis. And that's he's somebody that would take that takes you down many paths. I heard about Mose Allison through him. 
Mm-hmm. I heard about NRBQ. I d- took a deep dive into Bob Dylan because he played, I threw it all away at one of his concerts. And so he's, you know, if you, that's how it was then too. If you listen to musicians and you loved a certain musician, if that musician said, I like this and this and this, you'd be like, well, I got to try that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a Randy Newman fan at any point. Elvis Costello worships Randy Newman. I do not understand that at all. <laughs> but there's been many, many things that he's turned me on to that I never would have listened to. Because the Greeno Brothers. He, yeah, yeah, exactly. Graham Parsons. I first heard him on Elvis's country album. Mm-hmm. And then he'd have uh, Charles Brown. He'd play sometimes Charles Brown before his show. That was a blues singer that had that uh, Please Come Home for Christmas song. Mm-hmm. That had a little bit of a um, revival in the early 90s. Elvis, more than anybody, has taken me down some paths I never would have taken. If you're, you know, if your mother's playing country music and you're like 17, you're like, get it away from me. But if somebody you love says, oh, no, I love country music, then all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe this will open my mind a little more. Maybe I'll be able to, you know, what I take away what I like, find out what I don't like, take a deep dive into that, go into all that kind of. I love old school country all the Patsy Clines and Loretta Lynn's and Johnny Cash and the Carter family and all that stuff. But the country, the stuff that's on country radio now, it just sounds like, it sounds like it's, it's been uh, genetically modified to me. It doesn't, there's might be a little twang here or there, but unless it's somebody that's like a Sturgill Simpson or Chris Stapleton, it does, or Brandi Carlisle, she's on the, on the cusp of country and rock. If it's somebody, if it's somebody like that, I'm happy to hear it, but that's not what you hear. You hear, I don't even know what you hear. Georgia State Line and Rascal Flatts, and that doesn't that doesn't sound like country to me. It sounds like pop with banjos. Yeah, some of it's really bad. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Sturgis. What's his last name? Sturgill. Sturgill Simpson. Yeah, he's great. I discovered him mm-hmm. uh, last year, the year before. He's awesome. Yeah, what's his mm-hmm. thing? I'm I'm the king of shithill or something like that yeah he's really great but yeah like you he, i i really struggle with some of the country music that's on the radio it's just yeah it's, it's bad it's super brotastic i'm getting in my truck and i've got my six pack and my dog and you broke my heart and now i'm gonna go shoot you or i don't know i don't know if it's that <laughs> bad but it could it, it takes some turns it's just not my thing i heard sturgill simpson because uh first but actually, he's one of the few guys that has played both Coachella and Stagecoach out here. Mm. But his producer, Dave Cobb, produced uh, has produced every album for a band that I became friends with about 11 years ago called The Rival Sons out of Long Beach. Mm. And Dave Cobb has now become a great big producer, but he produced one of their, he's produced all of their albums. And so I was like, you go after a T-Bone Burnett as a producer, or you go after a Rick Rubin as a producer and just kind of follow their work, uh-huh. their production work. And sometimes it takes you because T-Bone Burnett was a friend of Elvis Costello's first and it opened for him when I saw him. And then he was producing Los Lobos and then he was producing this and producing that. And almost everything he produced, I would have to check out because he had such a, you know, interesting way of the production values are super interesting. And Dave Cobb is like that. He's actually um, Rival Sons finally got uh, nominated for a Grammy, two Grammys a couple of years ago. And he's gone on. He produced the latest Brandy Carlisle album. He produced Barry Gibbs uh, duets album that came out a year ago. He's done Chris Stapleton. He's done Sturgill Simpson. He's produced a lot of interesting people. That's another way to kind of find out, you know, you take the path with one guy and it takes you off in different, mm-hmm. different ways that you wouldn't know to do. Well, I wanted to ask the two of you about Elvis Costello, because I I recognize that I've got two massive Elvis Costello fans on the show today. But I was curious uh, about the two of you and your interest in Costello. Like, who's the bigger fan and how did you find was it through each other that you Uh discovered Costello or what's the story? Um, Well, actually, Bill and I both subscribed to a. Elvis Costello fanzine that used to come out of Amsterdam. What's it called, Bill? I can't remember. ECIS, and it stood for. Oh yeah, uh, Elvis Costello Information Service. There was a, <laughs> there was a you could you could post ads on the back of the very last page. The guy would do it for free, and I was looking. I think I was looking for bootlegs, or he was looking for bootlegs, 
And so uh, I put the place the notice or he did and we started writing each other. And then we had uh, conversations on the phone talking about what we had. And we made each other tapes of what we had. We sent him off and he lived in Santa Barbara then and I still lived here in the desert. And uh, we met up at a show. He was doing uh, the Juliet Letters, which is an album he did with a with a uh, a string quartet. And I had a friend at the record label that got us the tickets for free. Mm. And Bill got got us into the tonight show. He was performing on the tonight show that the next night. Oh, cool. And so I came into LA and stayed uh, at my aunt Jenny's house. Most of my family still lives in LA and I stayed with her and we met up and went and saw, didn't that happen? The Royce hall. It was like in 1993. Yeah. That's my memory. Anyway, what do you think? You got some other story? Well, you had the better memory than I do for that kind of stuff. So what was I wearing? What was I wearing? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know what you were wearing i'll tell you what you were wearing a demon record shirt demon record label shirt oh, wow we, say we went record shopping we went record shopping before we had to sit through jay leno on the tonight show and i'll uh, tell you who else who was on the tonight show that night it was denzel washington oh. <laughs> yeah. so that See, I, I remember yeah i i trust your memory i, I would have to say <laughs> yeah he's seen more shows than i have I just cast number 42 a couple oh months gosh, ago. That's I don't know how many he's seen. We've that, seen a yeah. lot of shows together. We've seen, I don't know how many shows we've seen together, but since the early 90s, we've seen quite a few shows together. I would say he's the bigger, he's the bigger fan. I'm sure he has more stuff than I do. And um, I mean, I have a full record crate full of Elvis and probably about 90 different CDs, the same ones over and over, or live ones or bootlegs or whatever. But I'm sure whatever I have, it's just a drop in the bucket to what he has. Well, I do have quite a few, but, you know, I have to say mm-hmm. I, I tend to go to the certain ones more than everything. So there's certain ones that are more favorites than others. Oh, for sure. For sure. For example? Well, I, I just recently picked up a, a boot that was recorded back in Tokyo, like in, I think, 89. And it's just really good. And, and Tokyo concerts are really good quality, usually, because the audience doesn't yell and scream and they're really quiet and it's like it's it's just like a almost like a regular album mm. with no audience and it they, they come out really clean so mm-hmm. those are kind of fun whenever you get a hold of one of those so and it was a really nice mix of songs and stuff a lot of different eras so that that was a pretty pretty fun thing and i played played that a few times is it with the rude five or no it, it's it's with the uh, attractions from 89 i think it's eight well I, I, How's that I, I, possible? Well, I maybe mean, it wasn't. I thought it was '89, but I have to go find it. You're gonna have to look because <laughs> he'd already dumped the attractions by '89, and uh, he was well, with the Rude Five. Remember, because he did Spike and he did. Well, a lot of times did, with the bootlegs, though, they don't always have the right information on it. Yeah, that might be it. They might have that year on it, but it's not. I have one from yeah. Texas mm-hmm. that says that it's from '82, but it's really. It's really from 83 because you have the, the punch the clock horns or whatever they were called that were there in 83 that weren't there in 82. Yeah. yeah. It's, it might be something yeah. like that. I thought I had it here at my desk. Yeah. But, I don't. but um, yeah. You got to be prepared, Bill. I, well, I, <laughs> I, 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 sprang, I sprang that question on him. Yeah. Because I <laughs> realized, right. whoa, I've I'll got this. slide. we'll let you slide here this time well i want to ask some more questions about review about reviewing although you've you've touched on already a number of things that i wanted to ask you about one of the things i was thinking about was how our opinions evolve over time like as we learn about what other people think about an album or we ourselves just change, right? And grow older or different. So I was wondering if there were albums that you reviewed that now you look back on that review and you think, nah, I probably wouldn't write that review now. Are there, is there, are hmm. do you have any examples like that? You know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head like that. There might be something like when I was in my twenties that I wrote about where I thought something was really great. Mm-hmm. Like maybe like Robbie Robertson's first solo album. And it goes when I go back and think, listen to that record now. I feel like it's more a product of of its era. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes an album just doesn't age well. Yeah, you know? for it's sure. Very, oh, for sure. It's really dated. It's very dated. Like I liked them okay. The first couple of Lone Justice records, like from 1985, the first one. 
but now you listen to it and it has those kind of 80s production values that we kind of put up with then like not necessarily on this thing but like you know the synthesized drums or oh, yeah. you know things would be kind of of, mm-hmm. of a drum pattern that you'd hear all the time and you you put up with it because that's what was happening at that moment and you probably didn't think you know but then when you listen back on it you're just like what is this Mm-hmm. So it would be more, I think, how uh, if the songwriting is good for me, the songwriting is good. It, it, there's rarely a time where I hear something where I'm like embarrassed that I, you know, was or or really am reevaluating. Most of the time, what I've liked, I, I still like, you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll still dig, dig out things from a few years ago that I really loved. And, you know, I, I still really love it. You know, I'm glad that I, I'm sort of consistent like that. Mm-hmm. There, I think, have been instances in my life where I've really liked musician or something, and then now I just a lot of music from the '90s has not held up well for me in life. Uh, when I hear it now, mm. it just uh, there's there's I don't know it there's like a kind of an overdose of like Lilith Fair ladies that 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 uh, just doesn't wear well with me at this point. There's some stuff I think I might, I mean, not that I did it on purpose, but I, maybe I've overplayed. So, or, you know, I mean, we're all always interested in things that are new and fresh. And so things that are old, sometimes, yeah, you're just not in the right mood for this old thing again. (laughs) But there's, there's also people out there that irk me by saying there's no good rock anymore. Rock stopped being good in like 1970 seven or something like that and you can <laughs> those poor me, people you can always yeah well you I hear that I hear that oh there's no good music anymore really wow and I can always come up with five or ten things that are interesting that are happening right now mm-hmm. case in point the rival sons who are a band that are uh mine that same kind of Led Zeppelin kind of a vibe they're a four-piece they're mm. like blues rock but they touch on other stuff Anybody that's a that's a straight up rock and roll fan would love that kind of music. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're looking for somebody who likes like Joni Mitchell or somebody that's a uh, reflective kind of singer songwriter, there's somebody like Phoebe Bridgers out there. Mm-hmm. If you want kind of dark music that's kind of Norish, uh, there's a band that is part time up in the jo- up in Joshua Tree and, and the rest of the time in Austria called Son of the Velvet Wrath. That's really, really good. You know, I'm always hearing stuff or finding out about stuff all the time. I think if you keep your ears open, you you do. If you just kind of want to just lean in on, say, there's nothing better than the Rolling Stones up to 1974, then you're missing out, I feel like. Oh, you're definitely missing out. So what you just did there, see, that's an algorithm that would work, right? Is don't if I say Bonnie Raitt, don't give me Eric Clapton because I already know about no. Eric Clapton. Obviously, no, yeah. it's like yeah, what we need is someone like you where you can say this is the kind of music I'm interested in listening to this morning. Have you got anything new along this line? You know, I, that's yeah. sort of in this genre that would be interesting. Well, I used to, you know, when I worked in store, I've worked in stores because I've worked in like I worked in the chain warehouse warehouse store, which is a California chain. I also ran um, the uh, music department in Borders for about a year and a half. And then I did the same thing at Barnes and Noble for about five years. And if people were coming in looking for something like say Van Morrison, but maybe not Van Morrison, I would mm-hmm. say, well, well, have you ever heard, have you ever heard Ray Lane Montaigne? Uh-huh. He's kind of somewhere across his, to me, he's a cross between Van Morrison, Joe Cocker and uh, Cat Stevens. Mm-hmm. I and he has, him. but he is really, he's really songwriting is really, yeah. If you like him uh, from his first album, I really, really liked him uh-huh. back then. I, I could give you two or three things that might be in that wheelhouse, but wouldn't be quite the same, but might be similar, but somebody new, you know, you always have right. to have somebody new, you know, you can't just stick on, I mean, I'm a huge Joni Mitchell fan, but I don't just, it doesn't just begin and end with Joni Mitchell. It goes off into directions like Laura Nero or Ricky Lee Jones or, you know, Jonathan Brooke, or um, if, if I'm going in a country direction, Patty Griffin mm-hmm. or Sean Colvin. I mean, I could name you like 10 different artists that are all female singer songwriters that are sort of similar, but not carbon copies. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. And there's so. so much music out there now. That's the thing is you really do need yeah. a curator. Yeah. We need like a call-in show with you where people can just, <laughs> <laughs> they call well, in with I mean, their but I couldn't tell problems. <laughs> there's, there's things that I don't know about, like right this minute, uh, somebody was asking me about somebody new and I, and I, you know, if I read about it, then it stays in my mind for a little bit, but mm-hmm. there's not too much time where I'm listening to, uh, you know, uh, Megan the stallion or something like that, or, you know, uh, who's the other one, Cardi B, that kind of stuff. I hear it mm-hmm. when I hear it and it sounds interesting. And then I just kind of go, okay, that's interesting, but it doesn't like grab me and say, Oh, I want to listen to this mm-hmm. now from forever. Yeah. To me, but, a lot of that stuff's kind of like just the manufactured sound in a way. And <clears throat> it's like, maybe could be any artist in sometimes and it's the same thing over and over to me but then again it's not what i listen to normally so i maybe don't have the right taste for it i try to have an open mind for stuff like that most of my my the rap and hip-hop i i really really loved kind of came and went by the by the beginning of the 90s which would be like uh de la soul or a tribe called quest i love a tribe called quest but and bands that kind of go off in that direction hip-hop where it has a jazz base that's mm-hmm. the kind of stuff I love. Yeah. If it's just I have a bigger car than you do and more gold in my teeth, I'm not interested. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I never understood these rap beefs between each other. I mean, can you imagine like Smokey Robinson getting into a fight with Marvin Gaye in the 60s? I don't get it. There was just all this I'm better than you are stuff. Nobody did that then. It just seemed like everybody was happy to have their own success. But now it has to be the, whoever the biggest, toughest dude is. There's always a rap, uh, a feud or a this or that. I don't understand it. You know, Willie Nelson is going to beat up uh, uh, Conway Twitty. Or, you know, I mean, it, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't transcend for me. It's just all music. You should all be happy. You're all making music and making money. It's yeah. just like, who's the biggest, you know, outlaw? I don't know. <laughs> It sounds like a video game or something like yeah, pitting your favorite musician against your friend friend's favorite musician. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Today, trying Lenny to... Kravitz takes on Kiss. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh dear. Well, I'm I'm picturing people coming into the. I can only imagine what happens. Like people come into your store and wander up to the counter. I'm sure some people are embarrassed, but you know, where they try and hum a few bars or like the, yeah. Oh, sure. I've done that. You know, actually the store I'm working, uh, I worked for just recently became a product of COVID and closed. So I'm not in a record store currently, which is just breaking my heart. If I, if I ever had the financing or whatever, I would like to open my own. Mm-hmm. but we'll you know we'll see if something like that occurs so i'm not doing it now but yes there's been many times where people have said a, a snatch of lyrics for me or hum something and sometimes you figure it out sometimes you don't uh i've been even been like not even at work and at home and somebody will call me up and quote a lyric to me <laughs> at work and ask me if i know that happened with uh i think um a street fighting man by the stones they only had part of a lyric and they knew it was the stones and they called me up and I could figure it out. I don't know. Uh, it, it works a lot of the time. Sometimes people ask you just the most insane questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would always like write down on Facebook if somebody came in and asked me something like somebody wanted some Paul McCartney T-shirts. Do you have any Paul McCartney T-shirts? I said, no, we have some Beatles T-shirts. Well, which one is Paul McCartney? And, and I'm just thinking, why do you need a Paul McCartney shirt if you don't know what he looks like? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, you've been in the business so long that you see people's knowledge morph over time, right? It's like that joke about somebody, some young person discovering that Paul McCartney was in a band before Wings. Oh. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you must have some great stories to tell. There's a one that the librarians do because the same thing happens to them, right? People walk up to the counter and and the classic joke is they walk up and say, oh, I'm looking for this book. Maybe you can help me. It has a red cover. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> There's a, yes. 
there's a yeah the librarians with a sense of humor now have started putting out displays of you know all the books that have a red cover <laughs> help people out yeah <laughs> we used to get that stuff a lot he's a guy they would tell you about something uh this is what he looks like and i would just be like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I, I should actually go through uh because i would write down every time somebody said something stupid in there because it was just it was legion it was like oh yeah there were two kids in there one time and one of them didn't know what's the name of it. it was like the one, one of them didn't know Reverend Horton Heat. And the other one's like, you don't know Reverend Horton Heat. You don't know Reverend Horton Heat. I'm like, he doesn't know Reverend Horton Heat. Okay. Just doesn't know. You know, uh, that's funny. Oh, that's hilarious <laughs> that you took notes on those. Yeah, you could definitely. I would always post it on on Facebook if somebody came in and asked me something stupid, or somebody, you know, uh, had a giant eagle tattoo on their chest, and they had their they were wearing like it was like some giant fat guy, and his stomach was hanging out of his short t shirt, and I got oh. these whole eagle tattoo. Oh. Or you know, people if people came in and they smelled, and I had the light incense. Oh, it was, uh, or people whistled. I, I have a real antipathy for people whistling other songs. And that's usually just older people would be whistling something else while you're in the store listening to David Bowie and they're whistling, you know, uh, uh, zippity doodah or something in my face. How that bizarre. Like they're like completely tuning out what's playing over yeah, the Yeah, like they're oh, going weird. from place to place whistling like it's Mayberry in the 50s. You don't have to whistle anymore. <laughs> we have record players. Interesting. It used to drive me crazy. And I would always say that on Facebook. I have a few friends that are like, don't whistle around her. She gets crazy. <laughs> well, it's, I don't mind whistling. I whistle all the time. But to whistle when something else is playing, that almost, yeah, sort of requires. Well, I'm not a good whistler. So maybe I have whistle envy. I don't know. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it could be a combination. But if I'm listening to David Bowie and you're whistling Boston, you're going to have to leave. that's funny but but in the same same token though i know you've had people come in your store and they'll recognize drum meters i think you mentioned a drummer that came in once that was like a jazz drummer oh yeah i was um i was putting away some cds and i saw at the corner of my eye this older man coming in and i thought oh he's going to ask me some dumb question because our store was situated in the mall it's called the record alley and sometimes people would come in there asking, it had been there since the early 80s, and they would ask you a question about something that was long, long gone. Or, you know, they would ask about a store that was gone, or they would ask about, they just kind of expected you to all know, like you were an information booth. <laughs> and he came in, and I was listening to uh, Betty Levette's Bob Dylan album. Mm-hmm. And I was putting away uh, CDs, and came in, and I looked, and I thought, oh, this is going to be dumb. But he was swinging his arm. He was snapping his fingers to the beat. He was really on the downbeat. And I thought, oh, shit, that's the Hal Blaine. Hal Blaine is the drummer behind in the Wrecking Crew. If you're familiar with that, it was a group of studio musicians that made records, uh, made the music for everything from the Beach Boys to Nancy uh-huh. Sinatra to Frank uh-huh. Sinatra. And it was him. He lived in the desert for a long time. And he was on the downbeat and I, of the song. And he was actually wearing also a... Um, t-shirt that had that symbol uh Zildjian, i don't know i'm not probably mispronouncing it but it's like a symbol for that drummers have okay and uh i pretty much was like oh my god you're hell blaine i almost dropped to my knees and genuflected in front of them uh-huh. <laughs> and uh he wanted to know where you could get iphone covers so that was, that was <laughs> yeah i you know i kind of you know rhapsodized for like five minutes you know oh my god you know like that and he was like you know where i can find an iphone cover and I was like, I probably go a little bit yeah so yeah oh, <laughs> all right yeah. one one more review just, one more review question here that sure, i was sure. just curious about was if there were ever any albums that you got and and you thought that you were going to love them and you wanted to love them and then yeah you just couldn't yeah, yeah. Um, Darlene Love came out with an album a few oh. years ago that was produced by uh, Little Steven from Bruce Springsteen's band. And it had song contributions by Bruce Springsteen. There were a couple by Elvis Costello. There were a couple by a few other people that I really love. Mm-hmm. Darlene Love actually spent her in 2014. There's a thing out here called the Palm, Fabulous Palm Springs Follies that ran from the early 90s up until 2014. And it was this, it was a... Uh, 
show where old uh, vaudevillian uh, or, or showgirls were in it, like these 80 year old showgirls. And then they'd have like a headliner, like somebody like Marie McGovern or, you know, uh, Susan Anthems or something like that in their final uh, season that they had before they stopped. It was Darlene Love. And it was right around the same time that that documentary 20 Feet from Stardom had come out. Yeah. And so it was a big deal that she was at the Follies. And my wife, Jan, happened to be working that year at the Follies. She was in the box office and Darlene Love would ha- and her husband would hang out with Jan every day. And I already loved Dar- Darlene Love anyway from Phil Spector. Uh-huh. And so, you know, uh, Christmas, baby, please come home, all that other stuff. And got to meet her and was very, she was very nice, very nice lady. And it was interesting thing about her was she would meet people after the show and she always wore gloves when they were around her. So she wouldn't get sick, kind of a precursor to COVID, you know, from seven or eight Mm -hmm. years ago. But they made this album together and I was excited and ready to hear it. And I sat down and I started listening to it. And I was like, well, that first song is not so great. Maybe it'll get better. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of ended up being that way through the whole thing. So I was like, "Ah, I'm not going to write about this because I just have, you know, it was just too much. It felt like it was overproduced. It felt like, you know, and I was just kind of really disappointed because I really, really wanted to like it. Mm-hmm. So that's one that I can think of off the top of my head. So you really pick and choose the albums that you review. <clears throat> I do. They give me a uh, carte blanche to pick whatever I want. Yeah, and, that makes um, a big difference. You know, I've had publicists send me stuff and sometimes I'll, you know, go out of my way to say, like recently, um, Eddie Van Halen's son, Wolfgang Van Halen, put out an album. It's called Mammoth, which is the name Van Halen was before they were Van Halen. Hmm. And uh, I contacted the uh, publicist or whatever, and I said, would you send that to me? And he did. And, and, and it's a really good album. He's hmm. really talented. He's, you think he's a kid, but he's like 31 now. But yeah. it's an amazing first album for somebody, you know, who's, who put it together after his father passed away and everything. So sometimes people will send me stuff. Sometimes uh, I, when I when I was in the record store, I could just I would order whatever I wanted. You know, mm-hmm. it would come in regularly with the shipment. So that that gave me a little bit more to uh, find if I if I heard about something and I wanted to get it. Now, if it's something I hear about and I want to write about it, I will I will try to contact their management team and how see how it goes like that. That that was the case with Brandy Carlisle or Amy Mann. Sometimes people send me stuff mm-hmm. um i have three friends that are publicists uh one of them carrie baker has this company called conqueroo and he has an enviable list of people that uh have been on his that there that he reps for like uh, marshall crenshaw and the rave ups and uh people like uh old people like that newer newer bands too that uh son of the velvet rat went through him there's uh john wesley harding's most recent album went through him so I hear a lot of great stuff all the time. Sometimes it's too much. Sometimes somebody will say, I sent you something a while ago. And I'll say, well, it's on the stack right here mm-hmm. and I'll get to it. So that's how that works. What are your top three records or CDs if you could pick your top three? In the world? Well, from... from uh, I the, mean, the, you know, that stuff could change all the I know. time. Like I know. My it's, life. it's always changing. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I had to like, if I had to like go like they used to have in those Tower Records magazines to uh, on a desert island and I had to pick just three, it would probably be uh, Elvis Costello, Imperial Bedroom, Joni Mitchell, Hissing of Summer Lawns, and uh, maybe uh, Ani DuFranco, Living in Clip. Mm-hmm. I hope that never happens, that you have to go to a desert island. Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I have to limit it to three, I would, it's really devastating. I have all of my stuff is on CD and vinyl. I'm not one of those people that streams or downloads. I'm not very technically uh, proficient with stuff like that. And I just think it doesn't sound good. So even if I have to move, we're really in trouble. (laughs) I think we need to have the opposite happen. We need to put you back in a record store where you have access to. That would be my, that would be my goal. uh, The only thing that's hampering me is not having any money to start it, but I have, I have a line on a collection that I could, that somebody, I know somebody that's getting ready to, you know, retire and move and wants to get rid of a bunch of stuff. It's just finding the money to, uh, that's the part I'm not very good at. Well, I hope that but, happens. Yeah. Cause, I, yeah, I, I miss it because it's. Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I miss talking about records and and music and pop culture all day. That's what you did. That's what I did, especially when I was at Record Alley, where I was for the last eight years. Uh, it was a great place. It was a store that had been opened in 1979, and I'd been oh, a yeah. customer there for a long, long time. Even when I lived 
in La Quinta, I would drive all the way to their first store in North Palm Springs, and, which was like 20, 30 minutes away from my house, even though there were other little record stores on this side. Mm-hmm. I would always go over there. And then luckily it, it all aligned and I started working for them in 2011 and I never had a better experience. So yeah, I miss it. Yeah, I'm sure you do. It's been so fun to talk to you today about uh, records and reviews and music. And before I let you go, is there anything you want to bring to people's attention, uh, resources you want to refer them to or events or stuff they should know about? You know, I work for, for a paper called Coachella Valley Weekly. That's a really great resource for all the entertainment that happens in the desert. Mm. Uh, the woman that started it, Tracy uh, Dietland, started it about 10 years ago having written for other publications out here. And it just really only focuses on uh, live music and stuff like that. Here in the desert, it has my columns. It has like movie columns. So it's a nice resource for if you want to find out what's going on in the desert. The desert continues to remain kind of not the greatest place if you're a music lover. I can't tell you how many shows I've had to drive to San Diego or to mm-hmm. Ventura or Santa Barbara or Los Angeles or Orange County uh, to see. They, they they still they try out here, but we can't somehow get it together where we have like a place that's like a troubadour or like a whiskey or something like that where people mm. can go to and see great bands that might be coming because a woman started this uh, bar a couple of years ago called the Alibi here in Palm Springs. Good name. Who works, uh, primarily, she's primarily a booker for places like the Echo in Los Angeles, and she's done Desert Days stuff. She's you know been a promoter for stuff like that. She's I think it's going to reopen in April hmm. and uh, she has some pretty interesting people coming through that she filters through because they're already at the echo in Los Angeles. It's just a little ways coming this way to play. She opened it in 2019, but then of course the pandemic hit But yeah. before that she had a really nice starting to life thing with local bands. She um, had brought in people like Imperial teen and uh, what else did I see there? but but she's brought a lot of people through that uh, she'd also booked at the echo and stuff like that so that might be one great hope for this desert for it to finally coalesce around an actual club that does stuff in the right way because it's always been haphazard here it's always been golf slacks and and cardigan sweaters you know that's the you know the old people scene here it's never been a uh, place where you could just go see a local band play it's always a nightmare having to navigate that club will open and then it'll close and then like that and you get you get the casino shows but those aren't always your best sounding or yeah. best best quality well shows. you know the one where we saw where we saw elvis agua caliente that's the nice one but it's expensive but they you know they uh, i think they're gonna have like zz top there and they're building a stadium out here but who knows what that involves you know like there's i don't really I'd rather go see somebody in a club or in a theater than in a stadium, personally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, I've been to the, the other a couple other casinos just because I have friends that can get you in for free, and I saw um, Bonnie Raitt and uh, Los Lobos and people like that. Peter Frampton, Cheap Trick, mm. oh, and Diana Krall. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. For free. Yeah, yeah. In fact, when I saw her, uh, there was a lull when she was getting ready to do it on for, and I yelled out "Almost Blue," and which is a song yeah. famously. Uh-huh. from her husband that's on her uh my favorite album of hers and she's like yes all right and she oh, did it so i was super nice. excited about that oh yeah cool yeah yeah you know it occurs to me that as we uh uh what's the right phrase i want to use here as we come to grips with covid-19 you know i do sense that there is a real groundswell of desire for people to get out and do things together with other people. And I really wonder if we're going to see sort of a resurgence of, of clubs like that, places where people can mix, you know, that just that I think we've all discovered over the past few years, how much we need people. And yeah, it would be really cool if that were an opportunity really for a lot of these things to get organized and there to be enough support to, to make them a viable business. Yeah. Because a lot of that's where a lot of people have suffered in the music industry because, you know, that's their bread and butter for a lot of people that just tour. That's how they make their money. And if they Mm -hmm. can't, then they're kind of screwed. Last year I saw a friend of mine play a couple of times and then I saw maybe five shows 
but it used to be when I was younger, I'd go see show after show after show, you know, mm-hmm. I've already seen a couple shows this year. I was up at Pappy and Harriet's for a couple of shows. Well, fingers crossed that, that that's in our future. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, it was been lovely to talk to you. I really enjoyed oh, having you come on. Yeah. So thanks so much for your time and for the work that you do oh, yeah. and the, the information oh. you provide people. That's really great. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. Thank you, Eleni. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, sure, sweetie. Anytime. Anytime. Okay, next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.